Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. On this episode, he's back. Fuck yes. My main man, Pat Davison, is back on the show to discuss everything about his new epic book, Mass 2. This is only part one of a number of episodes that Pat and I will be dedicating to discussing everything and anything to do with Mass 2. On this episode, Pat and I discuss what's new with Pat. We discuss creativity, how Mass 2 came to be. Pat and I discuss the gift of the addict brain and dopamine. Pat shares with us the three movies that inspired the conception of Mass 2. Pat shares with us how Mike Boyle, Van Setkin, Roman Foreman, Charlie Francis and Cal Dietz greatly influenced the design of Mass 2. Pat and I discussed the hormone hypothesis of hypertrophy and how it would seem that hormones are not as critical to the overall muscle growth process as was once believed. We discussed the microcycle setup utilized within Masu, which is a four days per week setup that incorporates two or really one and a half developmental days, a stimulation day and an alactic aerobic day. Pat discusses the importance of recovery days for the upregulation of parasympathetic activity within the Masu program. Here we discuss how important social support is and the work of Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory. We discuss how an excessive parasympathetic state can actually be detrimental to health and performance. And finally, we discuss, or should I say, Pat really discusses 
the molecular mechanisms of protein synthesis involved in muscle mass secretion. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with my brother from another mother, and I hope you all really, really enjoyed. Pat Davidson, welcome back, brother. Just for the listeners, give us an update in the world of Pat Davidson. What is going on? Well, Robbie, uh, as always, thank you for giving me an opportunity to be on here. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, I, sometimes I wish people could get a chance to hear the pre-recorded stuff. Cause I have, it, was, I have a, it is actually recorded. I mean, if you want it out oh, there. Oh, okay. I, I don't see why not because, yeah. I, I mean, man, you are, you're on fire today, I think, number one. <laughs> Uh, but it's the, yeah, it's, like, it's, I, tell, I tell you what it is. You know what it is? It's the dopo. It's it's the dopamine uh, addiction I got from my thirty thirty today. You might be. Oh, you're, you're, you're in that. You're in that post thirty thirty buzz right now. Yeah, yeah I see. I see what's going on. You'll appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've got a I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a lot of presentations coming up. Um, I'm going to China in. A couple of weeks, and I'm going nice. to be presenting over there. And then uh, coming back, and on November 4th and 5th, I'm presenting at Mike Ranfone's place in mm. Hamden, Connecticut. And I'm doing uh, – it'll be myself, Doug Kachijian, and Bill Hartman um, presenting at that for two days. So, you know, in all honesty, that's the big one for me. Like that's yeah. the one I've been – I've been working on that presentation for about seven months now. Um, it's I'm, – I'm talking exclusively about the brain – um, in terms of every everything that I can deliver on the brain is is what I'm going to give in those two days. Um, <clears throat> then after that, I'm doing a another presentation in Massachusetts in on um, the third week of November. Uh, following that, I'll be heading to Austin, Texas, in December, December sixteenth, uh, to present for two days there. Um, so yeah, number number of things lined up and. You know, I always try to do a different talk wherever it is that I'm going. Like, I never like to do the same thing twice. You know, I, I like to really force the issue on myself to come up with new material. So, I'll, uh, you know, uh, everything that I deliver is like a one-time thing. Like, I want it to be special. Like, I don't, I don't like to take pictures of things if I go on vacation because in some ways I don't want to remember. I want to, like, move on um, to the next experience and not always be looking back at, at previous things and relying on those things, uh, you know, to satisfy me, to make things easier in some ways. I guess I, yeah, I I think I just try to make everything harder for myself in life so that I force myself to, um, to do more, to continue to strive. You know, it's really funny you brought up that, um, you like to push yourself by having something brand new all the time. Because, uh, and this is a great thing we're talking to you because our conversations have digressions, but like creativity, and I know you, you'd like to look at creativity because it's such to do with like how the brains function and all that. But like you look at like the great masters and crafts, so like Louis C.K. was a master of comedy, uh, Jack White is a master as a musician. I've often heard those two guys speak about, like Jack White has actually said he thinks it's criminal for bands to go out on stage with the same playlist over and over again, like go out and tour, and they play the same playlist from song 1 to 20. He used to go out, he still does, he goes out on stage with no plan. And he's hmm. like, he's like, I want it to be authentic, he said, I want to be challenged. Like you want to listen yeah. to the, the, the interviews he used to do when he was at the White Stripes, he's like, with the White Stripes, he's like, all the time I was trying to push it to the max. So people people always say, oh, Jack White, like, like, so you hear some people say, Jack White, his guitars are all out of tune, he, his voice is out of tune, 
his the piano's out of tune. I was like, yeah, because that's on purpose. So like he'd say, mm. he'd, he'd say, I purposely played with terrible guitars because it made me, it made me have to work harder on stage. It made me have to be more creative. He was all about constraints. What can I make in this constraint? Like with the white stripes, they were only allowed wear black, red, white. They were only allowed three things at one time, as in like vocal, guitar, or drums, or mm. get piano, vocal. And he's like, what can I make out of this box? And then Louis C.K. is the same. There's actually uh, there's a, a video online of Louis C.K., Chris Rock, uh, Ricky Gervais, and Jerry Seinfeld. And there's an actual little argument in there where Jerry Seinfeld's like, I think you should tell your jokes, you know, your famous ones over and over again. People go, people go see that because they want to hear it. And like Louis's like, no, 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 it has to be it, that gets old. Like, and then Jerry's like, it's like a, a classic band where you want to hear the song. He's like, Louis's like, no, I, I think as an artist, you need to be pushing yourself and he's like Louis like he could have jokes with the same area but it needs to have different twists and so it's just interesting to hear that you know that you like new material all the time because I still go to like like I've gone Pat to like seminars and it's like I saw this guy present two years ago and the same thing same thing like and he's exact same slides everything you know it's just yeah you so know, it's it's mechanical it's like the, they're just going through the motions at that point hmm. you know I like to have a little bit of fear inside me like I'm not going to know what I'm talking about, and I really think that makes everything come to life, and it creates an. It, it, there's a tangible feel in the air when you've got that. Like, you know, that's that's where I like to live. Yeah, I just wrapping up on that, Jack White. Like, there's there's some great videos where he's playing, right? And because his, his guitars are so shit, like his string, <laughs> his his strings break mid song. Like, so there's one where like his so like he's playing, he's playing, he's playing, and the guitar breaks mid song, and like. It's 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 the it's the connection of him and Meg to know what to do in that instance. You know what I mean? Like she's mm. playing she's playing the drums. She has to be like, oh fuck. So like he so like the song might still have like this like forty five seconds that's wrap up, and he's got to wrap it now. Like and he'd look at Meg and the strings hanging off, and he's just like, or else he just he completely improvises. He'll play a new riff on it or something like that right in the moment, or he'll mm-hmm. just he'll 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 exchange into the piano all of a sudden and they're like, oh, now he's to play this song on the piano he's probably never done it before and they're like, oh shit now to play this song on the piano he just fucking goes with it like it's it, I think it's beautiful like to be honest but anyway speaking of pain or fear sorry speaking of fear Mass 2 uh, has, has invoked a lot of fear in people I was, I was just telling you online I'm doing a lot of 30-30 in my train lately and I was like you get that dread I was telling, saying to Pat for the listeners, you know, you're like, you, you go to the toilet one more, do I need to go to the toilet before I start this? Is uh, Will the music play? You keep stalling. Like, okay, just go. This is going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. So uh, let's get into to Mass 2, okay? So Mass 1 obviously had a had a great reaction from the guys who've done it. So Mass 2, w- what led to it? What What's different about it? Give us a bit of background. Sure. So, you know, I always like to remind people what the point of Mass 1 was. And, eat to eat and again, sh- to eat shit. <laughs> it it was, but like you know, I think that I think the truth is always more interesting than you know whatever we make up to make things sound good. And uh, and Mass One was a project that I did for Men's Health. Yeah, where they had an intern show up, and he was like a college cross country endurance runner, and he was about five nine, one hundred and twenty five pounds, and and like they were just. You know, they one of the editors who I commonly work with there, Michael Easter, who's a great guy, he, he wrote to me and he was like, Listen, like, we got this kid and we just think it would be a cool project to see how much mass we could put on him during his sixteen week internship program and I was hoping that you could write the program for it. 
And, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'll definitely give that a shot. So I, I wrote the program for him. And in large part, like I designed it the way that I did based on thinking about who this guy was. Like he's uh, a former endurance runner. And, um, you know, from what I understood, a very driven young man. And I was trying to create something that would really connect with him, both in terms of like his experience with with sort of like dealing with endurance and striving and pushing and, and being challenged from an energy system standpoint. Um, and then also designing something that was very simple, basic, and hopefully something that wouldn't hurt him. You know, so I, that's, that's really, so I, I designed Mass One and then I knew that I was, I wouldn't be able to monitor him during his process of going through this. So I, I also, I decided to, to do the program with him. And that way I would be able to kind of know what he was feeling if anything was going wrong or if he had questions or something like that. I, I often do that. Whatever I'm asking other people to do, I'm going to do the same thing. Um, and so I'm doing this, the workouts from Mass One. And some of the other guys that were working at peak performance with me were seeing me go through these these savage workouts and um, they, they wanted to jump in with me. And, you know, like you, like as, as seems to be a mandate, if you work in the fitness industry, you have to post a video of what exercise you're doing somewhere on the internet. Otherwise, did you really do it? But, um, you know, started posting some videos and, and other people were kind of like, what the hell are you doing? So I started sending the program out to various people that, that kind of were within the, the strength and conditioning and personal training community. And they started doing these workouts and posting them. And and then, um, you know, like I got word from Men's Health that they were going to do this special report. It was going to be a combo between peak performance and this program. Like peak performance was expanding and it was going to turn into like this space age giant gym that would have like every bell and whistle imaginable. Um, so they were going to do this big centerpiece story on peak. And then they were like, by the way, we're going to throw in um, this other special that'll be called like best program of the year or something along those lines for this program that you did for this intern because the results he's gotten from it have been astounding. He's gained 20 pounds of muscle according to all the measurements that we've taken on him. So, you know, I looked at it like men's health is going to do a print enormous advertisement for me. I need to be able to capitalize on this and actually potentially make some money off of the work that I've done. So I wrote the book, Mass One, uh, so that I would have a product available to be able to sell with this men's health promotion. And you wrote, and, you wrote that thing in 14 hours? Yeah, I wrote it over a weekend. You know, I just sort of like really, really just went in and, and just hammered through it and finished yeah. it. Um, and then, you know, things just unraveled for peak performance. It didn't come to fruition. The company went out of business and all of those men's health articles went by the wayside, but the book was still there and the book sold much better than I ever expected it to. And everybody that bought it seemed to really like it. They got tremendous results from the, from running the program. The, the results were so much better than I could have ever expected. And then, then you're kind of left in the in the aftermath, trying to analyze in hindsight why it worked. And, um, and at the same time, I was learning a lot about neurotransmitters and dopamine and uh, habit formation and goal setting and, and all that sort of stuff. And I was just kind of like, man, this thing, you know, 
with, with the way that you're talking about the white stripes and creating boundaries or confines that you have to work within, you know, mass one is the ultimate, like you have to work within these confines program. Like it's, you know, it's very specific in terms of what it's asking you to do. There's no, there's no wiggle room. There's no flexibility in the program. It is incredibly rigid in that regard. Um, and I think that that works really, really well. Um, and, and it's also like, you know, it's, I think that when you do that 30, 30 workout, it's incredibly challenging. And if you finish it, if you just finish it, let, like forget even getting the reps, you feel like you accomplished something. It, it, it's meaningful. But then if you actually hit your rep goal of getting all 450 reps in that 31 minutes, that's a major feeling of accomplishment. And, you know, if you're able to make progress and add more load to a couple of the exercises and then you finish that, like you, you get the sensory feedback of like, that was one of the hardest physiological things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And you met your goal at the same time. And to me, that's like, that's the essence of how you create habits is, is you need to have a powerful sensory response to the experience. You need to feel as though you're making demonstrable progress that you're going in a specific direction. And, and, and then ultimately at some point in the future, uh, you're going to actually lose that success. You're going to experience failure and that should initiate the craving response, which, um, has been, has been shown by, you know, primarily the research of Wolfram, Wolfram Schultz to be the most powerful driver of habit formation. Once, once you, and, and that's what, you know, Las Vegas takes advantage of, uh, is, if you won every time, it wouldn't be that much fun. Yeah. Or if you lost every time, it wouldn't be that much fun. There has to be, you know, an element of, of uncertainty. Um, so that's that's really like in in my analysis of why Mass One works so well. Uh, I think that's that's a that's really it. Like you know, all of those things are going to you're going to feel something from those workouts and you're going to also have a sense of accomplishment and progress. And then at a certain point it gets taken away from you and you go crazy and you do whatever you can to, to get that feeling back again. So something you spoke about in the first few pages, I think it's actually nearly on page one is this concept. And you kind of touched on it there a little bit about the kind of rewards that the brain associates with mass one. Um, and we spoke about this offline, and I know that you have no problem delving into this. You know, you spoke about your history with your mother and your father, and um, and then you, you you know your grandparents raised you for a while. You went back to your mother, and then it was essentially your auntie. And you know, you said you had issues with uh, drinking and drugs. Um, so you 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 kind of label yourself as someone with an addict brain. But what I really found interesting was that you were like, this addict brain is a gift if it's used, if it's used mm -hmm. in, a, in a certain way. So. Maybe just touching that, like the attic brain in terms of education, learning, and then when it comes to obviously training, and then the, the, the dopamine response to training. But because, uh, like in, in Mass 2, uh, and I'll probably have to pull up the quote, but you know, you, uh, you were saying, um, let me now, let me see if I can get this quote. Yeah, this is it right here. I love this. I highly recommend figuring out what you want to do with your life. A lot of people misinterpret this statement. Most people have no idea how specific I'm being when I say this. 
I actually want you to be able to say that there is one thing and only one thing that is your goal in life, or that is your life goal. The, the thing that I want to do in my life is to be the greatest mind regarding physiological development of human organism that ever lived. And then going back to this idea of, of the addict uh, brain, uh, you know, just kind of maybe touch into that part and how this addict brain is actually can be a good thing. Well, I can tell you that, you know, when I was, you know, let's say 20, 21, 22, there would be mornings that I would wake up, or you can't even call it morning, maybe uh, three in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, something like that, and um, have zero money in my wallet, uh, you know, just be like so, so hungover uh, from every every chemical that I could have possibly shoved in my body from the night before, uh, like full of regret, full of uh you know, just feeling as terrible as you can feel on, on all fronts and, and saying like, Oh my God, like today I am, I'm going to get my act together today. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe, maybe two, three hours later starting to feel that knock on the door because you're starting to feel a little bit better. And that knock on the door is coming in. And, um, you know, for me, like the, like the, my, my drug of choice was cocaine. Like that was, that was my probably the the greatest love of my life in many ways, and you know it's it starts it starts creeping on you that 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 thought of it in your head of like getting that feeling back, getting that you know if I just get a little of it, then I can be I'll be good, I'll be able to get get up and going, I can I can start the I can start my night again and and see what happens and like what kind of crazy situations I can get into. And, um, and I can tell you that, you know, even with no money in my pocket and even with all the regret and the terrible feelings and like being in the worst place in the world, somehow, some way, by the end of that night, I would figure out a way to be able to be as lit up as I could possibly be lit up. You know, I might have to scam, cheat, lie, steal whatever it takes, but I'm going to get a bag of cocaine and I'm going to end up with, you know, beer and vodka at some point as well. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen because if you put your mind to getting something, if you have that absolute craving and desire at the highest possible level, you will find a way to get what you want. It's the level of desperation that would drive me to that. And, um, and ultimately it took me a few years, uh, and so, well, maybe not, I'm not sure how long it really took in terms of being sober, but the realization that if I took that same kind of mentality, if I could summon that desperation to be able to try to acquire the things in life that, that normal people are after, you know, that's an unstoppable drive. Um, and, and I still try to, I don't have it as much as I did when I was younger, you know, when I was in my, my early and mid twenties, um, you know, I felt like I would, I had a better ability to just work night in and night out and day in and day out. I I mean, don't get me wrong. I still, I still grind very hard with, with working on presentations and reading and all that kind of stuff, but it's not the same insanity that it was in my mid twenties. But it's still there, and I still remember that. And I, you know, so every every junkie 
figures it out. Like the junkie is maybe the most driven person in the world to be able to actually acquire a very specific goal that they're looking to get. Mm. Um, and and I, I realized that like to me it was like one thing and one thing only. I need to acquire cocaine before the end of this this 24-hour period that I'm in right now. Um, how am I going to get it? And and now it's like that same level of being specific about what I'm trying to do and blocking out every other element in life so that I can hone in on that one thing. Uh, and it's very difficult. It's, it's more difficult to realize my goals now as a non-active drug addict than it was as an active drug addict because my goals were very were just more specific and and definable as a drug addict as compared to they are to they are now so that's it's a very interesting thing but um, I wouldn't trade you know there's always that question that people ask like if you could go back in time and talk to your 18 year old self what would you tell them and I would just go back and remain silent because yeah. all those lessons that 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 young individual learned created who I am today and I wouldn't exactly. be who I am without all of those failures and and pains and scars and those kinds of things along the way. So I couldn't be more grateful for for the insanity and and the in, the ridiculous drive to acquire something that I I still have that I just learned to redirect. So in the book, then you went on and spoke about these three movies that had a big impact on your on your life. Do you want to get into these three movies? And, and Absolutely, yeah. Like you know, I, 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 it's funny because my wife and I trade off and on like who gets to pick the movie on Saturday night, and and we typically go back to movies from the eighties, like it. And and it's it, so like I've been rewatching a lot of eighties movies over the last couple of months and. And there's, I'm, I'm again, I'm grateful I grew up in the decade that I did. The the movies from the 80s were very black and white, and um, like, they were just very simple compared to movies that, from today. Like, they were very clearly identifiable, good guys and bad guys, and, like, this mission that the good guy had to go on to beat the bad guy. You know, it's kind of the same script, so, sort of recycled over and over again. Um and you know, I think in in the book, like like the first book was based on Rocky Four, and um, I remember watching Rocky Four when I was a kid. Like I can I can remember being in my grandparents' house, like sitting next to my grandmother when it came on, and um, you know, at that time it was all everything on the television in the USA was USA versus Soviet Union. Ronald, was, Ronald Reagan. That was all it was. You know what I mean? It was like the like whether it was the arms race or the Olympics, it was unbelievably dominating the the television culture at that time. And then that movie comes on, and um, you know you see Drago kill Apollo Creed in the beginning, and it's like it's like shocking. And and then what really got me though was Drago's training with all of the numbers and the the devices that they had and, and uh, then the contrast of Stallone training with like very primitive methods and, uh, and then seeing kind of this matchup at the end of it, of it all. And, you know, so it was, it was just a very, very interesting sort of experience for me watching that. And, you know, as a very young kid, like uh, I, I don't think I was more than nine or 10 years old or something like that. Um, even, even younger though, the karate kid, like, 
I watched that when I was five years old in 1985. And, um, God, like that thing just pulled me in so hard. Like I bet you, you could have had like, um, you know, uh, a, a circus marching behind me with like donkeys and clowns and, and God knows what else taking place. And I wouldn't have paid the least bit of attention to it. I was so completely locked into that movie. And I, I started karate like the next week. Like I was so completely overwhelmed with the influence of that movie. It was ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, the third one that, that comes to mind is Bloodsport. Uh, and that was, again, like, I remember there was a bunch of us. We had, like, uh, it was, like, fifth grade for us where you're about 11 years old. And we were, there was, like, probably 10 of us. We were, it was, like, a sleepover at one kid's house, and we watched a bunch of movies. I think we watched, like, Pet Cemetery and some, like, killer clown from Outer Space movie. But Bloodsport was the one that we were all locked in on. And, you know, it was just the most mesmerizing thing in the world like seeing the matchups of all the different styles being brought together and tested against each other um and then you got chung lee in that one who's just such a monster you know what i mean and and uh he looks so impossible to defeat he's got all the muscles he's got the technique he's explosive but you, you get to see this like this methodical journey this multi-decade journey of frank duke's training and and really like trying to account for every possible detail and variable that could ever pop up in a fight mm. and um and you get to see it be played out in the actual finish of the movie where you know he's blinded but he had actually been trained to know what to do in blinded situations and and how to not panic and and um you know it's you know for me like I'm I'm a huge New England Patriots fan and and Bill Belichick is considered to be the greatest coach in 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 American sports and in the NFL's history. And and I think part of it is because he's notorious for practicing situations that are odd situations that but that do come up in games and seem to come up at critical moments. And um and his players, you know, it was the the interception that was made in the Super Bowl of the New England Patriots against the Seattle Seahawks where Malcolm Butler ended the game with an interception on the goal line, um, they had practiced that specific play. And Malcolm Butler just reacted to it because he had done that specific situation and knew exactly what to do. Um, and you would never be able to do that unless you had previously thought of it and accounted for it. And, and I just find that very few people ever put the work in to actually think about the levels of specifics that come up in that way. And um, so, I, 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 you know, it's funny. Like, it, I think that I'm going to have to do a book on Predator. You know what I mean? Like, that's going to have to be uh, some somehow, some way I have to do that. You heard, it, that's you heard like, it here, folks. Mastery's on its way. Yeah, I, I think that there, it's impossible to not throw that one in the mix. And also, RoboCop has to has to come out, which I think is maybe the most underrated 1980s action movie of all time. Um, but yeah, like those those movies, um, I think that I think that from just sort of like a the ability to set goals and work hard, a lot of those 1980s movies were fantastic for that. They mm -hmm. they really like they show you a positive result that comes as 
the aftermath of really working hard, which fits into the whole model of grit. Like, um, moving on from that now, in, in terms of goals and having this almost addictive brain to a goal, you know, you spoke about uh, uh, Ethan Grossman and, and like his his addiction, which is bodybuilding, and he wants to be the greatest bodybuilder of all time, and that was a very good, very good part of the book. And just another paragraph here, I might read the whole thing, but on page seven, I think this is an important paragraph because it really set the precedence for the book, and it also set the precedence of how I wanted to study, not read, study your book. And just for the listeners, mm-hmm. I was saying to Pat beforehand, this is probably going to end up being definitely at least a three-part series because with the nutrition as well, could even be four parts. But in this part, we're going to cover really the the science and the physiology behind muscle building. Um, and, and this, I really love this, what you had to say here. So you were saying that uh, page seven, second paragraph, it's the closing paragraph in the chapter. Uh, this book is a guide for the ultimate strength power, uh, is, sorry, this book is a guide for ultimate strength power, athleticism, and body confidence and changes. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do on every training day for this program. More importantly, I'm going to tell you why I want you to do each thing. So that, that's very important. That's just me speaking there. If you skip right to the what you're doing section of the book, I think you're a coward. So I was like, I'm not going to be a coward. <laughs> All right? These next lines are brilliant. I think you'll never be the kind of person who threatens to be the greatest in the world of anything. I think you're constantly, I think you'll constantly skim the surface of developing yourself, which I thought was a beautiful sentence, Pat. You'll be like the rest of the sheep out there. You're timid. You're weak. You think it's all about talent. You think people who beat you are just more gifted than you. You'll never get it. You'll see the one thing that you'll never see the one thing that really matters. That it's all about passion and perseverance. I hope we don't meet in person because if we do, we're going to get we're not going to get along very well. And if you get in my way, I'm going to run you over because there's only one place I'm going straight to the top. That really needed a fuck there, straight to the fucking top. Yeah. Uh, and there's only one speed that I'm going at full blast. When I set out to do something, I focus on that one thing, like a heat-seeking missile. Beautiful. And there is only one possible outcome regarding what I'm going to acquire. You'll be mine. I thought that was a fantastic paragraph. So it, know, it really set, it just really ha- set the precedence for the book. I had to figure out a way to incorporate that Guns N' Roses song into the book, You Will Be Mine. Uh in part because it's a song that's about cocaine, um, you know, and and secondly, it's just such a badass song. And, you know, it sort of sets the tone for the beginning of Terminator 2, uh, which, you know, this book is, is based on. And again, like what's really interesting to me is the confines, you know, and the degree of creativity that you can come up with when you do create some confines for yourself. And every chapter that I try to write is going to be based on um, a famous movie quote from from the movie that I, I sort of choose as sort of my muse for that book. And, um, you know, I, I remember thinking about kind of like how does Terminator 2 really start? And to me, it starts with that Guns N' Roses song mm. where you've got John Connor on the dirt bike um, listening to it on his headphones and, um, you know, I was just thinking about that song, You Will Be Mine, and what does that song really mean to me? And it's it just kind of, the whole first chapter kind of unfolded from, from thinking about what that song meant to me. So, 
not wanting to be a coward, I really did want to understand the why behind Mass 2. So let's get into that. So in Chapter 2, you talk about some of the influences on this program. So PRI has obviously been a huge influence. Uh, but then you also spoke about the Windows of Trainability course, which is something I'd like to talk about from Val Niseskin and, um, and from uh, Roman um, Roman For say his name Foreman Foreman is that right? Foreman I think Foreman Roman Foreman so make sure I pronounce that right then you also said that Cal Dietz was a big influence so was Charlie Francis with the high-low and then Mike Boyle from Functional Strength Coach 3330 so maybe just touch into those little areas and then we'll kind of move more into the physiology yeah you know I mean I think that one of the things I always like to make sure people hear right off the bat is that I don't I don't really think that I've created anything new. You know, I might I might like uh, put a spoiler on the car or something like that, but like no, nothing. There's there's very there's very few things that are new under the sun in, in regards to training. Mm. It's it's always kind of like repackaging and and putting a slightly new spin on things that have already been used a million times before. Um, you know, I think that I try to take a lot of things. And just bring them to their most extreme version. You know, I hear someone talk about a concept and I just think, what is the end stage? Like, how, how far could this idea actually be pushed? And I'm immediately just going to go straight to the end. Um, so that, that's kind of, I, I think, just, just making sure that, that, you know, because I think so many people try to go out of their way to invent something brand new out of thin air. And, and I don't really do that. I, I really do utilize things that have been created by others. And, um, and I try those things and I just sort of feel where they belong uh, amidst other things that I'm already familiar with. And, and I think that is mass two ultimately. Uh, but, you know, specifically starting with, um, like, I guess I could, uh, so the individuals were, were Boyle, uh, Roman Foman and and, um, wow. and Val Nasedkin, uh Cal Dietz, and Charlie Francis. Mm. So I'll start with with Boyle's contribution, and and um, you know I think that like I'm originally from Massachusetts. Boyle is from Massachusetts, uh, and we also have Eric Cressy based out of Massachusetts as well. I, I I think that Massachusetts in the U.S. is is a hub of uh, of strength and conditioning. Kind of right. Um, What's that? Connor, oh, Ryan. Connor Ryan, absolutely. Connor That's Ryan, it. I mean, you, you you throw him in the mix. Uh, but you know, there's there's um, I'm I'm biased towards Massachusetts. I, I I think that as a state, like it's it's a very educated state, and it's also a state that I've just found uh, fosters people that think independently. You know, they like it's. I find I meet people from other places, and and um, I find them to a either be a little bit more lazy. Or be like be afraid of really thinking in their own way and saying what they're actually thinking. But I meet I meet people from Massachusetts again, and they're just like right in your face and blunt, and they just say exactly what they're thinking. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's where I'm from. Those are my people. Um, and and I you know Boyle is he will always tell you exactly what he's thinking about something. He never never really hides that. Like whether he likes something, doesn't like something, he's he's going to tell you. And I love the way he explains things. I think he's so crystal clear uh, about his opinion and why he thinks the way that he does. And he always puts things into logistical settings of how he would use them or not use them. 
Um, and I, I've listened to so much Mike Boyle over the years. You know, I think that he probably is as influential in terms of the way that I think about things from listening to him talk about the way he thinks about things. Uh, he's He's been incredible. I think he's like the godfather of, of American thoughtful, high-level, modern strength and conditioning. And without paying homage to that man in this field, I think that uh, you're, you're totally missing the boat. And so it's like he's, he's shared so many things over the years and thought of so many great approaches and put together incredible models. And, and you know, one of those things was in Functional Strength Coach 3 where he was talking about working with the BU hockey team. And um, and just saying that, like, I don't remember why he needed to punish them for something. It wasn't. But the, he it, was, to, it was the it was the captain came to him and said, "We need to come together more as a team." And so we that's to, what it was. We okay. need to do group training. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he he basically put together like, uh, and I remember if you bought Functional Strength Coach Three, it came with workout music uh, uh, CDs. And those you could they were pre programmed with, with interval times and one of them was the thirty yeah. thirty partner workout. workouts. Yeah, that's the voice. Yeah. So I, it's like burned in my brain because Half, like halfway. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, the, the only the only reason I know that is you know my thirty thirty workouts at home, I have You're still using I'm it. I'm still using it. So you got that music that goes along with it and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then the you have yep. you have completed one cycle. I'm like fuck three left. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, it's it's literally like the thirty thirty started with just using that exact same thing, like a ten exercise circuit that's thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, done with a partner within that that boil concept, and um, and then it was sort of like, you know, is there a way to make the thirty thirty slightly better? And, and yes, there is. If you if you just give a specific number of reps that you're looking for, it changes the whole game. Yeah. And and um, you know basically it's like I've done it with other timing things, and it just seems to work well if you put it as half the number of like you're looking for a number of reps that's half the number of time of the time in seconds that you've given the person to work with. So let's see if you can get 15 reps in that 30-second window. If you get 15 before 30 seconds is over, just stop there and move on to the next station. And and when you do that, the you ultimately make it so much more physiologically demanding um, because the person's got this goal. And by the time you're in round three – you're you're like on the brink, you know. It's 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 pushing you to max within the confines of that that workout. Um, so it's it's like, but it started with Boyle, you know. It started with him talking about that that moment of having those hockey players doing that that program, and and again, like he also used a lot of things that, like I remember him talking about like uh, rotating plate twists, like you know, forty five degree angles and. And doing other like smaller, more I guess quote unquote functional exercises, and I basically just tossed all of those out and just like used only the biggest compound exercises that are the most simple to do, but to me are just more physiological work and easier to measure whether or not you did it or or not. But you know he 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 was honest about everything in regards to the outcomes of having those players do that workout, where he said. You know, it was unbelievable. Like they got stronger, faster, more muscular. 
their body composition was better as compared to like pretty much all the smarter things that I did with these guys over the year, the years. And um, his conclusion as to why it worked, he said that he had a conversation with um, with Cosgrove, Cosgrove man. and that psychology trumps physiology. And, um, you know, I always just – I disagreed with that. I, I think that that conclusion is, is, is an error. And I think that what it is is that those athletes were getting more training volume in uh, in a shorter period of time. The density of their sessions had increased, and they just did more mechanical work. And I think that mechanical work, if that goes up, leads to greater physiological adaptations. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you what, when you do the that 30-30 workout, the amount of mechanical work that you get in in that amount of time is through the roof. And, um, you know, even some of the newer research coming from Brad Schoenfield showing that lifting lighter weights uh, to failure results in the same kind of hypertrophy responses as um, as lifting heavier weights uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a lot of strength, power, hypertrophy kinds of adaptations, even with light loads. And I think that's probably especially true with people that aren't like extremely advanced resistance yeah. training subjects. Yeah. And see, the, the thing, a lot of the thing was a lot of those hockey players, the reason why the captain came to, to Mike saying we need to like train as a team because too many guys were hiding in their own sessions, like in the more yeah. individualized sessions. So like these guys were like bluffers basically. So when they were put in a situation where it's 30 on 30 off and everyone sees you, you can't mm-hmm. ha- you can't hide here, motherfucker. You're going to have to do those. T- Mike did 10 reps, I think, in the three seconds. He's like, so like those guys were probably getting a training volume and even loading that they'd never experienced before. So it was, yep. ba- it was basically like a beginner getting a brand new stimulus. So of course they were going to make gains on that. Yeah. So, you know, that – and, and I, look, I've been using that 30-30 – since uh, man, like 2009, with uh, with people that I work with, so it's not like it's anything new. It's like that. I always start everybody day one with that 30-30. Like I just want to see if you're a, if you're a new per- personal training client, like I want to see how you move when you're not thinking. And and I get people in that, and like in the first round, they're like trying to move in a way that they want to have. They they want to move in a way that they think I want them to move. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so much cognitive put into it. And then by round two, when they're so tired, I get to actually see how they subconsciously move. And I get to actually see all of these like live and in-person sorts of like, oh, this person uses this strategy, which is not a good good one for, you know, for hinging, for bent over rows, and for single leg activities. So it's 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 a great window into watching people work physically but it's also like what does this person have from a psychological standpoint is this a person that just has no grit and just gives up right away or is this somebody that's like they'll they'll put their head through a wall um so i just i learned so much about everybody day one putting them through that 30 30 and and i love the workout because it's got so much variability in the exercises built into it that nobody ever gets hurt like even if you do all of the exercises as poorly as you could possibly mechanically do them, you're constantly changing positions. You're yeah. constantly moving in a new pattern. You know, it's a hinge standing to like a supine push to a seated pull to a squat. You know what I mean? It's it's to unilateral, blah, 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 blah. You're never doing the same thing in the same position um, back to back. And so like – 
I've got a high level of confidence that I get to see truly in, a, in like a three-dimensional perspective someone's resiliency to stress, like psychological resiliency, uh, movement buffering in terms of like how does this person break down, um, as well as like energy system resiliency and buffering. Uh, so that's that's kind of like um, you know a lot of the things that I've taken from that tiny element of the things that Mike Boyle has to offer, um, and you know moving on kind of like Dietz and Foman, uh, or I'm sorry uh, Val Nasedkin and Roman Foman, uh, the Windows of Trainability seminar that they did at Mike Ranfone's place that I went to a year and a half ago, two years ago now I'm not sure exactly how long, uh, completely made me view training differently. And, um, you know, they, they introduced... That's, 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 a big, that's a big statement. Just want to say one thing to you, too. Yeah. So the, the listeners, obviously, this, we're, we're on video with myself and Pyre. Like, just, just for you, so you know, the reason why I'm shifting around is I'm going back and forth with my notes just to make sure I'm prepared to ask you. Is, you know, because I know sometimes when you see people and you're like, is that guy, like, what's he doing? What's he paying attention to? Like, I'm just, I keep referring back to my notes and making sure I have the next question lined up. I, I got you. I mean, if people can't appreciate you moving all over the place, then I, I don't like. I'm sure you have to do that in all your podcasts, anyways. Like, well, I don't per, per, see per, them like. Per, I'll, particularly this uh, one because I really wanted to have this shit ready for this one. The other one. Okay. Well, go uh, ahead. Yeah, well, I'm really interested so, in this one, the Windows of Trainability. So yeah, Val and Roman, and um, you know, it, it's like they got it's 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 very difficult to summarize all of the key concepts that they talked about. So I'll, I'll do my best to isolate a few and talk about those. Um, you know, I, they kind of start off just sort of saying that, like, a lot of your elite-level athletes and uh, Olympic athletes and those types, their um, expected lifespan is shorter than, like, average people. And um, in many ways, the cost of the physiological adaptations that they've put themselves through is excessive and ends up coming back and killing them, um, shorter than, than would be needed. And, um, and you know, so is it possible to allow people to reach that height of performance without killing them unnecessarily soon? And, and that's kind of, I think, the biggest overarching question to start from that those guys work, work with. And, and they believe that they have a solution to that problem and um, in large part, it seems as though the development, like if you can create a, um, a more of an aerobic-oriented development of the athlete, mm -hmm. they'll probably live longer mm -hmm. as opposed to relying on anaerobic development for athletes. Um, it's, it's almost – I think it makes a lot of sense just with, with other books and science that I've read in terms of – you know, from like, Nick, if you're going to die of... Nick, Nick Lane stuff, stuff of mitochondria. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, a lot of it just comes down to like, how fast are you oxidizing? Yes. You know, are you, how, how, how quickly are you rusting out as a creature? Yeah. And, um, you know, if you have a more tightly knit, uh, haplotype of your respiratory proteins in the mitochondria, you're probably losing less electrons out into space. Yeah. And it's those electrons when they start binding 
to other cellular components that are ox that are causing an oxidation. And they're getting DNA um, damage, and so it's really about making that electron transport chain as efficient as possible and be utilizing as much as possible. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think that that that's a huge concept that those guys are are saying is that you know it's like in traditional periodization models we've followed this concept that the results should the the measurable objective performance results should dictate the approach that you have that the training means follow the the arrow of the directional arrow of chasing the results and what they're saying is that we need to create the underlying appropriate physiological adaptations at the cellular level first and make sure that those are in place before we start chasing these numerical results. Like, you know, you can get someone to be able to pull off these amazing feats. Like I can, I can train an athlete to be able to have these incredible vertical jumps and, and display these amazing feats of power and speed and agility uh, but did I set the base first? Did I put in the prerequisites of having a high number of, of mitochondria present in the cells? Did I develop their heart? Did I give them a, you know, did I develop the central features first? Did I develop their nervous system and their cardiovascular system first? Mm-hmm. Before I went after these local tissues um, and really trained those tissues specifically, uh, at a certain point, yes, I do have to go get those tissues, but in the long-term development of the athlete, like I want to make sure I've got, I've, you know, with, with kids, like I want to develop coordination. I want to develop that neural sort of learning and, yeah. and even the, the power explosion and speed, but I want to do it with a central mindset rather than a peripheral mindset. Yeah. And, and I want to make sure I develop their, their aerobic capabilities, um, and and then when the stage is set, yes, to go after those those tissues and and build them with with things that are going to be hypertrophy oriented and protein synthesis directed and all that kind of stuff. But do it at the right time and um, and still be able to hold on to the aerobic uh, fitness qualities as well. So in a and they and they you know. I think that, that Joel Jameson's books have been inspired by the model that Val created. Um, well, it's, it's funny you say that because I was Metro last month, and he actually uh, he actually thinks that a lot of Val stuff is incorrect. In that, he, yeah. he, he said yep. he, he took it from Smolinov, is it or is that the name? Selinov. Selinov, excuse me. And uh, so Joel said he a lot of his stuff is from Selinov, not from actually yep. Val. And, and a lot of Val's stuff is actually some stuff that was either taken from Smolinov and not given credit to, or was even taken and not fully interpreted correctly. And actually, that reminds me. I need to get on. Joel said he sent me some of that stuff, so I must actually get on to that. But yeah, it's uh, like the little the white book of physiology from Selinov is is the big one that everybody goes back to. And I think that Val sort of introduced the world to that, and he might have misinterpreted a lot of the things. It's almost like Louis Simmons introducing the world to the Russian, Russian conjugate stuff, and maybe maybe not having it all one hundred percent explained as the books would. But he he started the process. Yeah. You know, he got he got a lot of other people reading that stuff and so and would, using the, it. would the would the lactic so and then we'll talk about Charlie. But just for for uh, 
the listeners to set a little more context. So Mass 2 is a 16-week program. It's four four-week uh, blocks, and you train four times a week, but there's three different training days. And it's funny, when you wrote that, you're like, yes, three days, four times, three different days, there, but, you treat, or, but you train four times a week. Like, That's not a typo. Uh, and yeah. So the three types of days are the stimulation or stim day, the alactic aerobic and the developmental day. Would that alactic aerobic day, would that have been sort of, um, would that have been, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, uh, like would the, would the stuff from Val and Roman, would that have been wh- why that day came about? Inspired basically, would that be inspired yeah. by, by, by Val and Roman? A hundred percent, like the whole model is inspired by the way that Val lays out programs. You know, I, I did it different than him because this is a book that's written for, for people that want to lift weights yeah. for the most part, you know, and they want to develop tissues as much as they can and be able to put up crazy numbers on their big lifts. Mm. So is it exactly what he's talking about for developing most athletes? No, but that's that's not who's coming out to get this thing. You know, there's there's not as much pure aerobic development in this as as what those guys would probably put into one of their programs. But I used their thoughts to try to frame this thing so that we would still be developing different pathways at the same time, all leading to one central goal, which is strength, power, and hypertrophy. Um, so it's it's kind of like. But the developmental day, and I, I know that Joel Jamison and Val really define the developmental day differently, mm-hmm. and I think that's a, a huge crossroads that separates those those two minds. And um, you know, Val basically says that the the developmental day is the day that is used to spike hormones to the highest possible level, and that when you have those hormones spiked, that and and look like he's wrong about this. You know, I'll start off by saying that 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 the hormones would would remain elevated in the system for 72 hours, and um, because like the the newer you know, uh, and and Ben House has been crushing this topic of late too. Like the hormone hypothesis of resistance training has largely been debunked, and it's mm. like a lot of the the hard work that I put into learning about strength, power, and hypertrophy is based on the hormone hypothesis. And now it's like, oh, man, is that stuff all for naught? Just just um, a digression. Uh, I read Mike Stone's book last year, The uh, Principles and Practices of Resistance Training. There was a part in that book where they spoke about that, and they spoke about that the hormone hypothesis needs to be disproven. They gave a good example. They were like, if you just trained your bicep every day, right? they're like, it's a tiny muscle. And if we were to take like plasma, testosterone, and before and after they don't really change much, but yet your biceps would grow. So they're like, mm-hmm. that, that was one example they gave. So they said there has to be another mechanism driving hypertrophy. Like it's not yeah. You know, it's it's an old thing. It's, it's it's um, you know, they used I, to do stuff with like rats where they'd cut their gastroc off and, um, and then the soleus would develop to these unbelievable levels because it has to. Um, but some, then they would take the research other la- layers deep and they would remove the pituitary of a rat and do the same thing. And they would they would still hypertrophy. They wouldn't hypertrophy to exactly the same extent. Yeah. And then you can also, like, remove the pituitary and the pancreas. And uh, so now you don't even have insulin playing any, any factor. And, again, it's like you've reduced the magnitude of that hypertrophy. So it's not like hypertrophy is solely based on hormones, but hormones 
can yeah. maybe be associated with some of the things that yeah. are causing these these hypertrophy I, responses? It's probably more association than causation, and that they they probably accentuate or like they they play a factor in leading to more hypertrophy, but probably aren't the main driver. Yeah, it, you know, I've heard Jason Kaliwa uh, explain it as almost like that these hormones could be like a traffic director at the site of an accident. And so they might be, they're not causing the flow of traffic, but they're there. They're associated with it on some level. Yeah. We just don't don't fully know what. But so, so Val's actual explanation for why the development day is it works is probably wrong, but it doesn't mean that it's not working. You know, so he, he says that the, you know, the type of workout you would do on a development day, it should be stress. You know what I mean? Like there should be hypoxia, there should be loading, there should be acid, it should be, you know, pushing you to the brink of stress tolerance. And, um, and in response to that stress, you would get this hormone response and the hormone response would stay elevated in the circulation for 72 hours after the workout. And whatever you're developing, like as a fitness quality, in that 72-hour window of elevated hormones, would you would improve the rate at which you would get better at those qualities if they're trained in that window of elevated hormones. So, you know, we, we, we have to throw out the this concept that it's the hormones that are driving the show. But it does seem as though there is a 72-hour window of elevated protein synthesis following the type of training day that a developmental day would be. Is that for, so, all, is that for all fitness qualities? Well, I don't know, and that's really kind of like where Val's idea is, I think, novel in some ways. And I don't know if it's really been tested, to tell you the truth. Mm. But at the time that he presented it, I had not heard about this debunking of the hormone hypothesis. So it made perfect sense to me. And it also makes sense if you just think about all the different kinds of athletes that like to take steroids. Um, you know, whether that be endurance athletes, um, you know, strength athletes, or coordination and precision athletes – Seems like everybody does better if you give them testosterone. Um, yeah. You know, so whatever sort of physiological adaptation you're trying to get, if I give you performance enhancing drugs, I will improve the rate at which you acquire those adaptations. And I probably increase the ceiling for the magnitude that those adaptations can reach. So it's, it's always kind of like, hey, we know that performance enhancing drugs create these sorts of improvements. Can we recreate that physiological response through some kind of a training model? Uh, and I think that's sort of the direction that Val was going in with yeah, that. Like, yeah, yeah. The developmental day is essentially your steroid shot at the beginning of the week. Yeah. And whatever we do in the window where the physiology is changed from that exposure, we should improve those qualities to a greater degree as compared to if we didn't have that day at the beginning of the week. So just something that's come to my mind there. In your mind, let's say we, we have that, 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 that developmental day, and it is our, if you want to say, quote-unquote, hormonal shot day, and it sets the stage for a large adaptation to the organism. 
we would then want to be very careful on what we program on the succeeding days in between that yeah. day and this, we'll say, we'll call it the 72-hour hypothesis because it could dampen down, obviously, the adaptations that we got from that day. Well, I would say that the hormone day, in many ways, is the GPP. You know, it just, like, what do you actually want to develop? It doesn't matter. Like, we still have to do this day at the beginning of the week because whatever you actually want to get better at, if we have this day at the beginning of the week, it'll improve the things that you're going to target. Mm. So if you want to target aerobic fitness, we're still going to do this developmental day at the beginning of the week because the hormonal response from it should still feed into better aerobic performances uh, and rates of physiological change as compared to if it's not there. Yeah. Um, so regardless, we're still if you if your primary goal is to develop one rep max strength or the ability to throw a shot put as far as possible, we're still going to train those things. We're going to train them in the aftermath of that developmental day. So that's the that's the thought process. Whether or not that's correct is a completely other separate matter. Um, so but, I, you know you gotta gotta try things and play with them a little absolutely. bit. Absolutely. So let's just. Uh Cal Dietz and Charlie's influences, and then from there, yep. then I just want to get into, you know, what I really liked was you were talking about uh, for hypertrophy, we need mechanical load, heat, and acidity. And I just when I heard heat and acidity, I was like, oh, it's so painful. And you were like, you know, <laughs> the, you went on to sort of talk about, you know, the max effort, dynamic effort, repeated method effort. And you're saying repeated effort seems to be the most potent in stimulating hypertrophy. You're like between six and fifteen reps, with ten being the sort of sweet spot. You're like three to five sets, sixty second reps. Or 60 seconds to 90 seconds rest period, and, was, and you were like, you know, big comment was like squats, and I was like, oh my god, five sets, five sets, ten squats, six second rest period, how horrible, the acidity, yeah. it burns. So we'll, we'll get on to a bit of that, and uh, also I loved your boat analogy. The boat goes out in the fucking storm, and you know, you were just mm. talking about the adaptation and, and the recovery. So let's touch on the Dietz's influences, Charlie's influence, and then let's start to get into this idea of mechanical load, heat, and acidity, and then. Uh, sure. And another thing I definitely want to touch on too is this concept of social socializing and recovery and the, the area of the mm-hmm. brain that it could trigger. So that was very, very interesting too. So let's go on to Dietz and Charlie for now. Okay, so Dietz is the author of Triphasic Training. and he's ter- the, ter- Terrible book, terrible book. <laughs> oh, it's oh, the, the worst. It's such a bad training book. Um, we're, being, you know, going, we're being sarcastic just in case people needed to know that. Going back and rereading some of his ideas – in the aftermath of going to Val and Roman's uh, seminar, it's like, oh, now I really get triphasic training. Like, that makes so much more sense to me now. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I had previously used the, the training model of triphasic training with training the athletes at Springfield College for, for strongman, and, God, it just worked so well. Like, people got ridiculously strong using triphasic training's concepts. And um, I just look at it as, like, you know, with aerobic, alactic types of training, we're talking about, like, the, the only, like, when you do your work in that, like, it's going to be phosphagen system, and you're going to go to the max. Like, we're going we're gonna to recruit and fatigue every fast-twitch fiber we possibly can, and um, we're going we're gonna to get ultimate kind of, like, strength and explosion and power in that session that we can, that we can squeeze out of you. Um, I just, I just think that from the perspective of like being a high quality strength and power training day, I haven't done another workout that's better than the way Dietz packages it. Mm. Um, so it's, 
there's a million ways to do aerobic, alactic work, and some of it can be more aerobically building. This is not, I, I wouldn't describe this as being like enormously aerobic building. Like if I was going to do that, I would probably do something more on like a, an airdyne type of bike and maybe do like a six second sprint and like a 50 second recovery and do like, I don't know, 20 rounds of that or something or uh, something along those lines to develop more of an aerobic system. But again, like mass two is based on like, let's lift some heavy ass weights and get ridiculously strong and jacked. Um, so I can't think of a better phosphagen system day that would be lifting weights and getting stupidly strong that could compare with triphasic training. So I didn't try to reinvent the wheel whatsoever. I stuck right to kind of like the over 80% um, heavy block that he uses as kind of block one. And um, and I just plugged that thing in for, for day two of the aerobic alactic um, component that fits into this model of developmental day, aerobic alactic, and um, stem day. So, you know, it's, I, I again, I just love that training day, and I just think that the use of complex training um, is smart. I, I think, like, the best place to, you know, it's, it's hard to make, like, I, and let me just transition kind of into Charlie Francis with this. Yeah, like, of course. You know, I think that, uh, you know, what he talks about is to stay out of that, that no man's land of the middle zone in some mm-hmm. ways if you're really going to develop someone to the highest levels of speed. Um, and I'm, I'm not looking to develop people in this program to the highest levels of speed. If I was, the developmental days would be different. But, yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's like he, he would say that if we're doing a speed day, this, the, the runs that you're doing have to be 95% to 100% of your best time. And if they're not, we're done. We're not doing these things. Like we're not going to develop speed by having you run at 91%. It's not speed at that point. It's some other thing that's living in that no man's land zone of being too intense to recover from and, um, and not intense enough to actually make the right adaptations to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I look at, at this complex training mechanism as being potentially one that like allows you to push that a little higher. Like we might be able to train, we might be able to develop things like, like jumping capabilities at about like 105% on those kinds of days. So we continue to push you in a direction, um, by utilizing that, that post activation potentiation mechanism. I, I mean, the research is, seems to be very conclusive, uh, that it actually works, that if you jump or sprint, um, in a window of time after you've done a heavy lift that you actually improve that those things quantitatively, which are very hard variables to improve. Um, so it, like, I, I think that not enough coaches use complex training and post-activation potentiation, and I think the way that, that Cal Dietz uh, packaged it in triphasic training is, to me, like a – it's a, it, it's a fun way to train with that French contrast method. And it, you know, you either improve your jumps as you go through the rounds or they stay the same. So they're not really dropping off. So you're, you're still utilizing some of those, like, I think, um, you know, v- very wise 
uh, pieces of advice from from Charlie Francis on that front of yeah, making yeah. sure that you're at that 95% or higher level of output when you're developing those phosphagen system qualities. Okay, so let's transition that into obviously mass is about putting on mass. Uh, yeah. You know, it's about optimizing body composition changes. So, you know, on page 12 of the, of the document you sent now, so it, it was more sort of draft, so I don't, I don't know if it's page 12 in the official book because it might be like a cover page and all that, but it, on the page 12 of the Mass 2 book that I have, you, you spoke about, you know, that, um, you know, this idea of, you know, about three to five sets for 10. Now, you wrote down 10 RMs. This is one thing I, I have to pull up here. You can't be a 10 RM for five sets because it's your 10 RM. Well, you keep dropping the load. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but did you ever read these books? Yeah. Go, We're going to do four rounds of 15 RM with six second breaks. Like, then it's not your 15 RM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm only being facetious here. Uh, but anyway, so roughly three to five sets of, of 10 reps with a fairly, you know, fairly challenging 10 and with 60 second break, compound movements. And you're saying that while hypertrophy seems to be this idea of mechanical load, heat, and acidity. So maybe just, you know, talk us through why, like, heat and acidity was a nice way of putting on it. Like, so is that just another way of putting, like, metabolic stress and hypoxia to the cell in your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, I, I think it's also fair to say that, you know, again, like, I've been more recently exposed to this this hormone hypothesis debunking. And and um, and also it seems like, like I, I, I see a lot of stuff Brad Schoenfield puts out, and it seems as though – this this short rest period stuff is not really the way to go. It seems uh, in terms of maximizing hypertrophy. Yeah, because volume but, drop off. Yeah, so it's it seems as though volume is the biggest driver, and but it also seems to me that like the more that the more information we're getting, we're realizing we really don't know what's 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 driving the show at this point in some ways. Um, I mean, it's still obviously going to be protein synthesis of transcription and translation, but like, it's it's. I think it's more complicated than what we thought, and it doesn't really seem to be this this hormone hypothesis that's necessarily the most potent factor for transcription and translation related stuff. Mm. So I'm and I'm okay with saying like I wrote this thing before I really started getting exposed to a lot of this, and and I'm totally okay with questioning. Um, what I put out there, you know, I, I may be wrong. I, I may actually have information that's outdated at this point and probably needs to be revised, uh, in terms of recommending something like, you know, 10 RM sets with short rest periods that, that very well could be like, you're probably better off doing 10, you know, 10 rep sets that have longer rest periods between them so that you can actually use a greater load for each you, set. You can, you can acquire more load over, over the mm-hmm. sets, yeah. But one, one thing I'll say, I was talking to Ladin Janovich on Wednesday, and, and just on that point, just because, let's say, like the three sets of 10 with a short rest period, like it, 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 it's not, it's like the what we thought it was giving us or what we thought the mechanism was for hypertrophy might be correct. That still doesn't mean that there, there could be some other mechanism that it's, that it's inducing yep. that's causing a, a, a hypertrophic effect. So. Yeah, everything that can be measured, maybe, you know, it's like we, we're stuck in that if, if we can measure it and it goes up, like then it seems to matter. But the things that we can't measure might matter quite a bit. And, uh, you know, so a lot of, yeah, like a lot of those short rest period things, they might be leading to benefits that we aren't seeing yet because we can't, 
we haven't thought about how to measure some of the factors. For sure, I think that's something to consider. Um, but at the same time, it's 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 kind of like, you know, you also have to utilize these things that seem to be pointing us in a direction. And it seems as though there's a lot saying that longer rest now is probably more beneficial from a hypertrophy standpoint. Um, it's tricky because, like, you know, do you have three hours to work out every day? You know, probably not. Like, and, and most people don't. So you probably have to find some middle ground of feasibility and um, and still kind of being uh, respectful of what the evidence is suggesting. So, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's still like a metabolic component is still involved with hypertrophy. Yeah. You know, there is there is a mechanical component and there is a metabolic component. And when I think of metabolism, I'm always thinking of like the management of hydrogen ions and the management of heat. Um, and, and the more that you have those things as disruptive factors, the more that they can potentially rearrange the cytoskeleton of a cell. And, um, and once you, you know, you have to break down the cytoskeleton of a cell to be able to rebuild it in a way that might be potentially bigger and more robust in the future. Okay, so, uh, and then just the part on recovery you had, which I found very interesting, and maybe you just correct me on this if I'm wrong, there did seem to be a little more emphasis on recovery in Mass 2 compared to, to, to Mass 1 in terms of, you know, getting into more parasympathetic states because of allowing for adaptation, and then obviously uh, I have here my notes recovery, uh, easy aerobic exercise, mitochondria to ATP, oxidative rephosphorylations, as we kind of touched on already. But I have down here my notes too, interesting concept in social engagement, triggering parts of the brain associated with relaxation, regeneration, recovery, specifically the nucleus ambiguous parasympathetic state located in the medulla. So uh, I found that very interesting. So maybe do you want to just touch maybe on that social engagement? Because what I really did love about yeah. your, your rest days, you're like, get outside, socialize. Be around the people that you love. Appreciate the people that you love. You know, and then you're saying there's actually sciences, and you kind of get a little piece there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this stuff is, you know, to really be able to dive in on this, I highly recommend that everybody reads the polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory, yeah. yeah. You know, Stephen Porges. It's. Um, I, th- I feel like more and more disciplines are are referencing that book, whether they be psychologists or psychiatrists that that work with PTSD. Um, individuals or trauma survivors, uh, you know, the way that I'm going to have you train on the hard days in Mass 2 in many ways is traumatic, you know. Um, like, it, it's threatening. It is incredibly threatening. And um, so I do think that, like, trauma-related approaches, like how to work with people that have experienced trauma – is actually appropriate. I think about that for like NFL guys too, like the trauma that they experience and like the things that tend to work for them to get them to feel better. They're, they're, they're kind of in those worlds in some ways. Um, so, you know, with Porges, he talks about this uh, three tiered autonomic system that evolved over time. And, you know, if you look back to, um, the origins of an autonomic system, it started with a reptilian brain uh, 
and you would have the dorsal motor nucleus as the first autonomic piece that developed over time. And that is a parasympathetic center, and it still exists in, in human brains, in, in your brain and my brain, and the dorsal motor nucleus descends from the medulla, and it is going to innervate and command mostly the subdiaphragmatic organs. And it's in charge of a lot of the vegetative functions of the body involved with digestion and um, essentially everything below the diaphragm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it also has nerves, efferents, that go to the, uh, I believe, the SA node of the heart and the AV node of the heart. I'd have to recheck exactly if it's both I'm nodes pretty sure it's I'm, I'm pretty sure you're correct. Well, it's definitely SA. I'm pretty sure because I remember from my heart physiology, medulla was the driving factor in that, like, in terms of the regulation. Now, the thing is, is that you do not want this dorsal motor nucleus affecting the heart because when it does so, it's like essentially if you kind of know anything about Omega Wave, uh, you don't want to be in a really bad parasympathetic state. Yeah. You know, if you're there, if you're overtrained parasympathetic, that is the worst case possible. And it's essentially saying that your dorsal motor nucleus is assuming some of the responsibilities of the equipment that's more modern from an evolutionary timetable. Uh, so dorsal motor nucleus is the first one, and it's very useful for reptiles to utilize this parasympathetic approach because reptiles utilize free, freezing responses and feigning death very effectively. Um, but they're not homeotherms. They're, they're heterotherms that like allow the external environment to dictate their body temperatures. So... If a human being utilizes these behavioral shutdown, freezing, and death feigning mechanisms of the dorsal motor nucleus, it can potentially lead to really deleterious consequences. And Porges says that sudden infant death syndrome is most likely when the infant, uh, when it encounters stress, it shifts into this dorsal motor nucleus command system over the heart and over the, the status of the constrictile nature of the bronchioles and that it constricts and causes the heart to go into this extreme mm. uh, um, bradycardia response, which would be death fainting and freezing and great for reptiles and really bad for mammals that need to run at a high temperature and a high metabolic rate. Just just slight digression on that. Um, from the little bit of mitochondrial medicine I done before with a doctor called Dr. Michael Kucheri's Russian and he he utilizes a HRV unit to look at the autonomic nervous system. It's kind of a window into like how the mitochondria function at a more sort of cellular level. So he, he looks at a kind of a more systematic uh, level of the body in terms of the ANS, and from that deduces how the mitochondria really function from a cellular level. But that was one thing he always brought up with us. He was like, if you uh, take someone's HRV and they're in an over sympathetic state, everyone seems to get that that's not good. But he's like, people don't seem to understand that if they're overly parasympathetic, he's like, that is very bad as well. So he was like, to him, he was like, their sympathetic system is so fatigued. Like, he was basically saying the HB access is so fucked that that they can't even make enough sympathetic activity or, or yep. output enough sympathetic. So the so parasympathetic completely overrides them, and they go into, like, serious bradycardia, like 10, 12 heartbeats a minute. Every time they stand up, they faint because their, their bar receptors 
are just they're they're not responding quick enough to get blood to their brain. Um, and it was funny because then our question to him was, well, how do you tell? Like, because he was like, for sportsmen, he kept going for sportsmen, parasympathetic, very very good, but for regular population person, no, not good. And then we were like, well, how do you tell if it, if it's bad for the athletic person? And he'd say. And he gave us, he was like, if this parameter and this parameter, and he say, and also if it takes more than this amount of time, then the athlete also is parasympathetic and he goes, not good. So yeah. it was it was just very interesting because everyone, everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone seems to, it's like blue light too. Like, was like oh, blue light's terrible. It's terrible at nighttime. It's very important in the morning. It's like right. the same thing with like uh, sympathetic person. Everyone's like, oh, sympathetic's bad. Parasympathetic's good. It's like, no, it's, a, it's, you know, it's context. Yeah, because there's polyvagal means that there's multiple branches of the vagus. Uh, it's not just one thing. It's two things. It's a dorsal motor nucleus, uh, dorsal uh, vagal complex, and there's also a ventral vagal complex, which is the uh, the nucleus ambiguous. And, um, you know, like as I was saying, like we have this evolutionary timeline of autonomic development of creatures over time, and the first thing to develop was, was this reptilian mechanism of death feigning, um, and freezing and behavioral shutdown, which is a great survival mechanism for reptiles, yeah, yeah. that uh, that developed first. It developed control over the heart and control over behavioral strategy. And then the next thing to develop was a sympathetic system. So that, you know, it originally started with these animals having what's called chromaffin tissues present at the heart. And these chromaffin tissues secrete um, epinephrine and norepinephrine uh, which would accelerate heart rate to be able to give them behavioral strategies in the face of threat uh, that differed from behavioral shutdown. So it was the second behavioral adaptation that, that took place in, in response to a threat response. And then the third, uh, the third autonomic system that developed over evolutionary time and is exclusive to mammals is this uh, nucleus ambiguous ventral vagal complex. Mm. And, um, you know, it's it's a very intricate system, but it generally is involved with, uh, it's, it, it controls su- uh, supra-diaphragmatic organs, so it's the primary influence over a mammal's heart at rest. Um, but it's also heavily tied in with... Um, a lot of the cranial nerves. I know it's cranial nerves 5, 7, I think 10 and 11, I want to say. I could be could be missing missing one or two, but uh, to throw out terminology, the muscles of facial expression send their input to the, um, the nucleus ambiguous from an afferent standpoint. And a lot of these nerves are also tied up with the inner ear, okay? So the inner ear is receiving vestibular signals and auditory signals, and those things are going afferently up cranial nerve number eight. And when you get to the superior olivary body uh, complex in this kind of ear-brain network, there is crossover and irradiation with the 10th cranial nerve, and the 10th cranial nerve is the vagus nerve. So, you know, auditory input, vestibular input, both feed into ultimately like uh, what the vagus nerve is doing from a threat perspective, and it's it's like auditory stuff becomes very important. 
And it's, it's a lot of it is like the hurts that you're receiving, and it's the difference between reptiles and mammals. What, reptiles what, 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 are, did, what did dead people do to compensate for that? That's a good. I don't. I don't know. That's a. That's a great question. Um, they're probably. They're probably getting more of a threat response because, like your your ear is part of the temple bone, and mm. the temple bone is picking up vibrations. So you you don't just hear through your ear holes Very and true. the ear canals. You're also getting all these these vibratory components that are literally directly going right into your skull yeah, yeah. and vibrating the temple bone. And um, that's kind of like listening like a reptile in some ways. And reptiles only hear low frequencies. They hear rumbles and growls and essentially threatening noises that other animals would, would provide. So pretty much everything they hear is, a, is to give them information about threat. Yeah. Mammals, on the other hand... Uh, adapted a different structure of their ear bone and have a separation of the bones in the middle ear that's tied together by the muscle tensor tympani. And um, essentially that muscle's uh, contractile state allows you to be able to hear higher frequency noises and higher pitch noises. And mammals use that from an evolutionary standpoint as an advantage over reptiles because we can communicate with each other vocally to tell each other things that reptiles literally cannot hear. So we could strategize how to go out and like kill an alligator. Yeah, yeah. And the alligator has zero ability to pick up the frequencies that we're using vocally because it doesn't it can only listen through a basically like a solid vibrating temple bone versus our ability to relax and contract a tensor tympani muscle. Now, a lot of this stuff goes into like research with auti- autism and Asperger's and stuff like that. And it seems as though the tensor tympani muscle is like long and, and weak with, with those individuals rather than actually maintaining some level of tone. And autistic individuals oftentimes are unable to differentiate noises very well. But it, it leads to this idea that, um, that like, you know, long story long, <laughs> uh, but Social engagement and talking with people is important largely because the auditory elements are activating this neo-mammalian ventral vagal complex autonomic system. And the more, you know, the the term that, that, that Porges uses a lot in polyvagal is prosody or the way in which we're able to hear the emotional intent of someone's vocalizations. Like when, when you're able to pick up on prosodic elements of the noise that's coming into your ear, you are activating the ventral vagal complex to a high degree. So we love stories. You know what I mean? We love hearing other people talk to us in ways that convey like a connection. That emotion is, is the connection. And, and um, the more it's like a positive, friendly connection, the more we're feeding into that system. And, and I just look at social engagement as ultimately being the best possible recovery strategy because it's, it's, a, it's like a positive feedback mechanism. The more you're in these situations that you like, where you're hearing things that you like, now you're vocalizing with them and you're using your own prosodic elements of voice. Uh, you're probably changing your facial expressions, you know, like 
uh, orbicularis oris, the nerves that control that, like the trigeminal nerves, they're all feeding afferent information to the ventral vagal complex. The ventral vagal complex is ultimately determining the emotions that you feel, and it's determining those things from a couple of, of different afferent networks. It's determining those, those feelings based on the afferent feedback from the muscles of facial expression, and it's determining your emotions based on the, the cardiac afferent messages going back to the brain, and it's also determining it from elements of the gut, uh, which is referred to as interoception. Um, the physiological status of the gut largely dictates your emotional state along with the physiological status of the heart, and the muscles of facial expression. Two things on that. With the with the first evolu- ev- evolutionary part of the autonomic system, you know, this parasympathetic state, you're talking about the reptiles, and they, you know, they kind of, they like, you know, they freeze or they almost fake death as a as a survival mechanism. And it, it it makes me think of Wim Hof, the Iceman, and, and what mechanisms he getting through that cold. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously the the, the reptiles that, that was probably mechanisms to get through, like. You know, a winter strategy or a or a, a hibernation strategy. So mm-hmm. just like with Wim, like they're saying that, and then some of Jack Cruz and stuff, really, you know, that cold and the immune system it seems to upregulate um, immune factors and help with. So just saying, like there must be some maybe link there in terms of help with survival and upregulating the immune system. And and then the other yeah. thing, the, the other thing to do is just with the with the facial feedback to the brain. Um, kind of goes to that research. I remember, I don't know if you heard about like the strength postures. They were saying that. Even if you don't actually feel like you're like so, they were talking about power postures, what they were called. Like if you certain postures, you, you just you just got into, they actually started to upregulate certain like uh, emotion, emotional feedback to the brain. So like you know, like one was like a there's a power posture versus like you know a weak posture, depending on how like you you stood or, or how you presented yourself. Even if you weren't feeling like you wanted to do it, time if you just got into it, it actually like there was one where like one power posture they saw like it will regulate testosterone. Now, I haven't looked at research, so it could be piss poor methods in it. So, mm-hmm. But it, it just makes me think of some of that stuff. But, yeah, uh, you know, there's there's definitely just two things I want to mention briefly before course, we, yeah. we move on from that topic. Is One, if you ever watch an interview done with Stephen Porges, he smiles literally after everything he does. He's like trained himself to smile uh, as much as he possibly can because – just by smiling, you're going to be creating the right afferent information going to the nucleus ambiguous. So fake it till you make it, 100%. And um, and the the last like critical point, and again, like a lot of times the devil's in the details with these things, you know. Absolutely. And it's like Absolutely. I mentioned throughout a lot of ideas, but the one thing that brings it all together is this notion of something called Jacksonian dissolution. And Jacksonian dissolution says that. Uh, the most, whenever you're encountering stress or threat, you will drop off the newest evolutionary um, uh, things that you've built in yourself. So, if we're talking about this autonomic system, you're the when you encounter stress, the first thing that falls off is your ventral vagal complex, your nucleus ambiguous, and you resort to sympathetic behavior and drive. And if you continue to amass stress and threat, that's when you drop off and you go further back in evolutionary time to utilize the dorsal vagal complex. So it's all a stress-related thing, 
And I think that the easiest way to explain this to, to people that are used to, to training is I use it with energy systems where, you know, if we look at the – because, again, it's three things, so it's, it fits nicely. The, the earliest to evolve energy system was the phosphagen system. The second was the glycolytic, and the third was the oxidative system. When intensity and stress is low, we're able to utilize the most modern adaptation – which is also the most complicated and the most enzymatic steps and the most pieces, which is oxidative. You know, you've got Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, lots of things going on there. If stress increases beyond the level that the oxidative equipment is able to handle, you have to become more reliant on a glycolytic system. And if stress increases beyond that, you have to now drop down and use this phosphagen system. And because... You know, like a lot of these systems are, are, are very fast-acting systems. Like if you're running 100 meters, the intensity and the stress of the output immediately just shifts you into becoming completely reliant on a phosphagen system, and uh, your oxidative system can't possibly deal with that. So I, I think that it makes sense. Like the most modern is always the most complex system that is going to be the most difficult to understand uh, but it also is when when the most modern adaptation is running the show, you're doing very, very well from a psychological standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, and from an efficiency standpoint. And when you have to resort to these older systems that are less complicated, but it's it's almost like uh, you know, if your fancy new clock isn't working, this clock that can play the radio and it can play CDs and it can play, you know, it can tell you the weather and it can play white noises. That thing breaks. Well, then you have to go back and rely on the thing that you have to turn in the back because that thing's not breaking under any circumstances pretty much, but it's not, it doesn't have as many features to it. It's not as cool as the more modern one, but the more modern one isn't as resistant to stress as the older one. The older one's a little bit more reliable, even though it's not as cool and complicated. And we just have, like, the furthest back-in-time thing, like the sundial. You know, it's it's still – it's going to work under any circumstances. Like, you're never going to be able to change that thing from being able to function. But do you want to use a sundial? You know, it's it's 2017. You want to be able to use the most modern thing. Um, so when when life is going good for me – I'm using my most modern stuff. I'm using yeah. an aerobic system. I'm using a nucleus ambiguous. When challenge starts to present itself, I should be able to, to go back in time and use these more primitive systems to be able to get me through this. And I should be able to very quickly go right back to my most modern adaptation. And if I'm able to have that, that take place, which is something that we call the vagal break, you know, I, I should be able to respond to stress simply by turning down my vagal break and allowing sympathetics to, to express itself. But I should be able to shut, to shut sympathetics right off again and go right back into my vagal system very quickly and let it do its thing. When I can't make that shift is when I'm, when I'm showing signs of intolerance to stress. Yeah, and then that will obviously lead then to more oxidative damage, which will lead into less longevity. And it makes you think too then that you know when you get people who are very stressed, fight or flight people who live more in that reptilian brain, 
they generally have more of that uh, hypertonicity in their muscles. And yep. then and then when you have that more hypertonicity in your muscles, you're getting more constriction of blood flow, more anaerobic environment. Now you're relying more on glycolysis to run the show rather than 100%. again rather than the oxidative system and being getting ATP through the electron transport chain, you're having to get through glycolysis, which is going to cause more aging. Um, probably then they're going to get issues with insulin sensitivity at a cellular level because you know you we're, when we're in flight, fight or flight, we get that acute. We need to eat the, that acute hunger where we eat something shitty, and then uh, we know then that excess insulin can lead to oxidative damage. These aren't good environments for muscle building. So, uh, Pat, I'll tell you what, uh, you're a big boy. You're, you're, if you're, I can, if I can, I just want to oh, throw yeah, this yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Of course, of course, my because friend. Like, uh, now are you familiar with RPR, the Reflex Performance Reset? Chris Corfus, uh, of course, yes. Yes, yes. So, you know, a lot of, like, I've been to their level one course, and I know a lot of people that are, are super into it, and they're using polyvagal as kind of their explanation of why this thing works. And, I mean, quite honestly, I don't know if I buy that, like, all that, all that much, but it, I think it is potentially interesting what you're talking about, like, this hypertonicity. And um, and a trauma response, essentially, like almost like being able to look at the body as localized regions that are displaying the same kind of concept. Like, are you resorting to essentially a behavioral shutdown mechanism of, let's say, you know, an adductor because of trauma? Like, is it a trauma response? Is it a threat response? That's causing behavioral shutdown of these tissues, and and how can I coax these tissues? It's almost like I feel like they're using their hands as like a social driver into specific tissues to give them a chance to like kind of revert back to the more modern adaptations. Because you're 100 right. Like local tissues are where oxidative energy system or any other energy system is actually taking place. So those tissues have probably learned to rely on non-oxidative methods mm. just to get through life. Yeah. And and as a result of that, like they're probably existing in some chemical nature that's making them super hypertonic, um, which is not allowing them to be able to express greater behavior. Whatever you want to call that range of motion, I suppose, but just simply by re-engaging those things, making you more aware of them, um, you're probably. I, I think I, I don't know. Like I think the mechanistic explanations of RPR are really bad. Like I'm I'm okay with going on the record and saying that. Um, I think that that particular discipline needs a greater level of mechanistic explanation. It doesn't satisfy me currently. Um, and, but it, it does seem to cause responses in people. I just, I, I, I really don't like things that work that, that have a bad explanation for why they work. And an, and an unsatisfied Pat Davison is a scary thing. Dangerous, my friend. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. So wrapping up on this because, um, as I was about to say, to you're a big boy, and no doubt you're getting hungry, um, and I'm skinny. Well, now, but I get hungry. I made sure I made sure that I got up before this started and ate a very large breakfast. So I I am good to go. 
Now, I don't know what – you're on a six-hour advanced time schedule than I am, so it's got to be like dinner four. time. It's rumbles, four, yeah. It's four here, yeah. Four, four. Okay. But uh, I came in from my uh, my dopa my, – my, how do you say that? Dopa generic? How do you say that word? Dopaminergic. Dopa, I came in from my dopaminergic, whatever passed there. Uh, tra- 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 uh, a bit of a tongue a training session, and I didn't really eat anything, so I'm, I'm extra hungry. But I, I, I do want to get this in. So just for the listeners, what, I think I said this already, we are going to probably break, break up Mass 2 into multiple – definitely there's going to be a part 2 and then a part 3, if not more. And the reason why is because they want to be a coward. They want to get really nitty-gritty into details here. So, I mean, even just on that uh, part there on recovery from Pat. And by the way, one great quote in the book on recovery, and I just love this one, is make sure you don't, you don't have to make – make sure you don't have to recover from your recovery which I think is a great thing because you, you will get some of those people who are just like they'll make their recovery days on their training day. And that's what we've been guilty of. I've been guilty of that myself. But, Pat, let's yeah, just – Yeah, I think I stole yeah, that directly from Charlie Francis too. Yeah. Let, let's just finish up here on the uh, the limiting um, – the rate-limiting factor in protein synthesis. So you get into the book. You talk a little bit about transcription and translation. We, we get we, – we talk about – uh, protein synthesis at the uh, the nucleus level. You know, we talk about uh, some different hormonal stuff going on there. And I know we spoke about maybe the hormonal stuff. Maybe maybe might be an actual an absolute driving factor. But we definitely know that these things are happening. The 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 uh, physiology you talk about. So maybe mm-hmm. so in in Masu you said that it seems translation seems to be the rate limiting um, process in protein synthesis. Uh, the mTOR uh, pathway seems to be critical. You talk about mTOR complex one and two. Complex one seems to be where the money's at. And then you were saying essentially protein synthesis is dependent upon ribosome efficiency and capacity, which is li- which is driven to a large extent uh, by mTOR. So maybe mm-hmm. uh, we'll just get into a bit of that. Talk about the uh, self uh, the rate limiting um, process of translation and anything else you want to get into there. Um, and there was sure. and there was something else I was going to say ribosome. Oh yeah, and then we'll, I'd love to wrap up on your your seven points mm-hmm. of uh, basically how to completely maximize ribosomal e- e- um, efficiency, capacity, and mTOR signaling. Um, and I have the seven points written down here. Maybe just we'll get into that. So uh, absolutely, see if we can get that wrapped up in the next maybe twenty minutes. So yeah, that's yeah. that's a good goal. Okay, so. You know, you always have to start out by, in my mind, defining things and explaining the way that they work. So protein synthesis is the objective that we're after because that's that's hypertrophy. Um, And it also seems to be everything related to increasing force production as well. Um, So protein synthesis is divided into two primary stages, transcription and translation. Transcription is the process of writing down the genetic code for how to build a protein at the ribosome. So transcription is taking place in the nucleus, and it is where I open up the double helix of the nucleus so that I can make a messenger RNA copy of the section of the DNA that codes for how to build a specific protein. All right, so... You know, I, and again, kind of going back to the hormone hypothesis where I learned a lot of this stuff from, you would be looking for certain types of hormones that are able to affect transcription. And the hormones that affect transcriptions 
are the steroid hormones because they can move directly through the plasma membrane because the plasma membrane is made out of phospholipids, so yeah. fat can move through fat. And steroids bind to receptors that are found on the nuclear envelope, and then the hormone receptor complex goes into the nucleus and it binds to a specific part of the DNA that, you know, we're, you know, not to go into that rabbit hole too much because we're trying to stick to this 20 minute time gap, but essentially the environmental signals are switching on and off certain uh, proteins that are existing on the DNA itself. Yeah. Uh, methane groups, or uh, is it. Uh, the, the word is, is, is sort of um, methylation. Methylation. methylation me me yeah, methyl groups. Methyl groups, yeah. Those are, those are proteins that are essentially, they're, they're just all over. They're, they're all over the, um, the DNA double helix, and they get signaled based on environmental signals coming in to, to essentially tell you, they're like signposts, what genes need to be switched on to a greater extent based on what environmental signals are, are driving and dictating. So I've got, I've got some methyl groups that are essentially like out there with like the, the uh, airplane, like the, 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 the guys that are out on the tarmac of the airport with their like light batons saying, hey, come over here. You know, this is the protein section that you need to copy from the DNA. Um, so we're, we're probably going to be copying signal or, or, or sections of the DNA that would tell you how to build actin, myosin, as well as things like titan, which are those uh, cytoskeleton proteins, structural proteins that hold the whole cell together. Mm -hmm. All right, and um, so I'm going to use the enzyme DNA helicase to actually open the DNA at that segment so that I can allow RNA polymerase, the enzyme that essentially runs up the DNA in those open sections, uh, to move through those regions. And, and essentially as RNA polymerase moves through a region of the DNA, messenger RNA is forming out of the back end of that RNA polymerase. Yeah, yeah. And the messenger RNA is, is containing the DNA information. It's a copy of that information. So to, to, to draw a picture of that for the listeners, because I thought you did a good job in the book, the DNA helix unravels. Yes. It unravels. It opens. And, and then you get that RNA polymerase, and then on the tail of that messenger R RNA comes in and takes that information and starts to bring it out then from the nucleus to the cytosol and to the ribosome. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have to be able... And the whole thought with steroids was that they they increase the rate at which you could perform transcription. Yeah. And, um, you know, at least when I was learning all this stuff in the mid-2000s, uh, you know, early 2010s, you know, it, it, was, it was being said that, you know, steroids probably aren't the aren't responsible for the direct effects on, on hypertrophy because they're, they're regulating transcription mostly. And transcription is not the rate-limiting factor of protein synthesis. It's, uh, it's the translation mm. steps that mm. seem to be the, the rate-limiting factor. Now, but what we also know at the same time from looking at people that have been taking different kinds of steroids, like if I give someone trenbolone acetate, 
they're going to end up with like 200% more nuclei inside of each muscle cell as compared to somebody that's not on trenbolone acetate. So I don't know if natural or endogenous steroid hormones would lead to a greater number of nuclei present inside of a muscle cell or not. Uh, I'm not I, don't, I haven't seen any research on that front. Other people might be aware of that stuff. I just simply don't know. But it, again, could be an area that we just haven't looked at in science or measured. Because I, I look at transcription as essentially like the number of, or at least the, the nuclei, like how many factories do you have in your cell to be able to make these copies from? You know, And then those copies need to go to a ribosome, and the ribosome is the place where we build the structure out of the blueprints of the messenger RNA. Um, but if I, it's, I mean, steroids work. They help you build muscle, and they seem to increase the number of nuclei you have so you would be able to send a lot more messenger RNA out into the cytosol where it can potentially move to a ribosome and build you some proteins. Uh, but, I, I don't, again, that's something I don't know about. And maybe yeah, other yeah. people do. Yeah, it would be great to hear from them. But once I get that messenger RNA to a, to a ribosome, now I have the opportunity to build the protein that is instructed by that messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA has to send transfer RNA out to other parts of the cytosol to gather the appropriate amino acids to assemble in triplicate formation to build the chains and links of that protein. And um, you know, once I've actually assembled that protein, uh, then I would take that protein and send it to the Golgi apparatus that where it would be folded properly into its appropriate tertiary and quaternary forms where it actually becomes an active and functional uh, protein. And, and it seems as though the Golgi is affected by things like uh, heat shock protein and also perhaps uh, cold shock protein, which you know, might be where some of those, those, those hot and cold therapies come into play. But uh, let's stick more to translation as opposed to talking about post-translational modification of proteins. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, so you'd, you'd look at translation, and then you'd say, okay, well, I've established that translation seems to be the rate-limiting step of protein synthesis. Within the confines of translation, is there a rate-limiting step of translation? And it seems as though the ability to get through the mTOR1 complex is what that that is. So it's kind of like, well, what the hell is this mTOR1 complex? And and the answer to that is that uh, essentially translation is a cascading phosphorylation process. So a phosphorylation process is that we have many enzymes, and anytime you you know it's a phosphorylation process if the enzymes say kinase. Uh, those are always going to be phosphorylation enzymes. Um, kinase enzymes take a phosphate from one chemical compound, they transfer it to another chemical compound, and the process of moving that phosphate to the second thing activates that next complex. Mm -hmm. And then it just simply gets transferred. It's like a bucket brigade in some ways. Yeah, you said it in the book, yeah. Yeah, you said it in the book, like putting out the fire. 
Yep. You know, you're passing a phosphate from one complex to the next complex via enzymatic steps. And what's interesting is these, these phosphorylation kinase complex steps tend to be ones that uh, the expression of the physiological cascade gets magnified and amplified with each step. It's more powerful with each step. Um, their secondary signaling cascade systems is oftentimes the way you'll hear these things referred to in physiology books. And secondary messaging cascade systems tend to be powerful intercellular physiological chemical pathways, um, which the translational system is. So there's multiple pathways within translation that you can utilize to activate each enzymatic step of being able to bring transfer RNA uh, amino acid holding things to the right location and to be able to assemble these proteins. But it seems as though all, all roads ultimately have to go through this mTOR complex that's kind of the central hub of this whole thing. And um, it seems as though there is this P70SK6 enzyme that activates mTOR1. And P70SK6 means that it's it's in the 70th position, and it is um, a SK6. It's a kinase. It's like the sixth kinase in the 70th position in this, like, unbelievable web of translational steps. You wonder who studies that shit. Oh, it's the sixth one in the seventh pathway. Seventh yeah, pathway. man. There's like these really incredible minds. Like the genetic scientists are, you know. Let's can we please stop blaming these poor people for not being able to to solve the cancer riddle? It's a really complicated riddle. Like these are really smart people that have studied these things to levels of depths that like we're, we're, I'm scratching. We're just talking about of. we're just talking about fucking muscle mass here. And- yeah, well, the same people that study muscle mass are studying cancer because if you can figure out how to shut off anabolism, you can shut off cancer proliferation. Yeah, very true. So, you know, it's kind of like the the reason probably that hypertrophy science is so complicated is probably the same reasons that cancer science is so complicated. And as soon as you think you got an answer, man, the thing like morphs and changes and you have to look at it through a completely different pathway and expression, but... You know, it seems as though, anyways, this pathway that involves activating the P70SK6 uh, enzyme that allows you to enter and go through the mTOR rate-limiting factor step is the thing that you need to have take place in order to allow anabolism and protein synthesis to continue. And if you can't get through that thing then you kind of get stuffed and the whole system gets shut off. Mm. And then the next step is like, okay, well, what allows for the P70SK6 step to take place? And it seems as though the answer to that is that you need to have a sufficient level of leucine present in the intraribosomal space. Yeah. And, um, and once I have enough leucine, the system runs and goes through all these steps. Now, I wonder, uh, is, is that just leucine? or Because I've heard that leucine needs to have the other essentials with it to, to optimize its function. I believe... Now, again, 
I, I haven't looked at this material in in yeah. some time. I know. And science marches forward. To the best of my knowledge, it's a leucine dependent phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that may be an outdated statement that so, other so, people have a better so answer lu- to. Leucine availability is very important. It says uh, here in the, in the ribosomal region. And then there's a, an enzyme AKT, which seems to be a, a very, very important enzyme too in this process. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's kind of like, well, how do I make leucine available to this this ribosomal region? And and again, this this might be where the hormone hypothesis getting debunked is is kind of where my knowledge base diverges from. Uh, you know what's what's current and more accurate, and somebody like a, a Brad Schoenfield would probably be able to to answer this more with more recent information than I I can deliver. But from from what I understand, um, you know, it's a situation where certain peptide hormones are able to open these windows that admit leucine into the ribosomal region. Um, yeah. Now now AKT. Uh, you might have to remind me on this one. I believe that one is associated also with like ribosomal biogenesis. Um, AKT. All I all I know is it's. Uh, hold on, I'll just go back to my notes here. It's been a little while for me. I need a refresher on my own stuff. No, it's all good. So AKT key enzymatic step that takes place prior to reaching. Oh M- yeah, yeah. Tr- prior to reaching mTOR in the pre. Um, uh, translational cascade system, and what seems to inhibit that is oxidative stress. So that goes back okay. to that goes yep. back to staying more aerobic and more in the electrotransporter, particularly in our recovery periods. Yeah, uh, and you, you, you spoke about uh, so yeah, I know you said the hormones there, but you were saying IGF and, and growth hormone do seem to be players in opening the intracellular portals to allow leucine, uh, and assuming we have uh, sufficient amounts of leucine, into the ribosomal region of the cytosol. So uh, mm. they, they seem very important and. And I'll let you speak now a sec. Just that, and so you were kind of saying, therefore, ideal environment for muscle mass, low oxidative stress, and then high levels of uh, anaerobic peptide hormones. And again, you know, we spoke about the hormones, but um, and provide the uh, appropriate setting for mTOR to be activated for muscle growth at the ribosome from a ribosomal efficiency standpoint, and to be maximized. So, there were some of the points you, you, you alluded to there. So definitely low oxidative or low oxidative stress environment is one thing, and then to try and induce, you know, mechanical load, heat, acidity, and then a large anabolic environment to the, to the system and to be able to go from that seems to be definitely places we want to go. And he's so that, the, that yeah, the yeah the oxidative stress piece I think is fascinating. Yeah, and I think that this is one of those areas that can be similar to. The topic of, of overall general stress, where you know people hear like, oh, you don't want stress, so I should never stress myself out. Yeah. And and it, then there's now that now we have a big problem. But it's it's like I like the way that Robert Sapolsky phrases like, there's a difference between chronic stress and acute, and acute stress. stress. Yeah. And acute stress is stimulation. Yeah. And chronic stress is just chronic stress. Just, just for you go on there, when I think about it, so yesterday, I, I, uh, Thursday, I met up with Brendan Egan, who's the head of sports science in DCU, and his big uh, background in research is a lot to do with protein and um, protein synthesis and sarcopenia, and we got into mTOR, and I was like, what's the story with mTOR? Because you hear people, that it's critical for uh, protein synthesis and building muscle mass, but then you hear that if you overactivate it, you uh, it, it's, it's been associated with... Um, 
decreasing people's longevity, like so you'll die sooner. And yeah. and he just he and like it's it's kind of like I knew this already, but then he just said he just goes, "There's a difference between acute mTOR activity and chronic mTOR activity." And he's like, "Acute, very good," because he's like, "That's what we need because we want to hang on to muscle mass as we get older." I'll have off-put sarcopenia and other other disorders like that. And he's like, "But if you have that thing activated all the time." That's not good, and he's like, particularly like then if you have something like a cancer, where then that would help proliferate yep. the cancer. So going back to your point there, I was like, we're we're talking about muscle mass, we're like, yeah, but it's still the same mechanisms as well. If they can understand how you turn uh, muscle growth on and off, it will carry over into cancer. But yeah, it was just this acute versus chronic. Nearly everything comes down to acute and chronic loads. So it's like yeah. the, the difference between poison and medicine is the dosage. Exactly, and and I think the same thing with this oxidative stress thing, where I think some people would interpret that and say, well, I should never make my resistance training one where I'm like huffing and puffing and out of breath, and I'm like, ooh, I think you might be missing, missing the boat yeah. on the acute versus the chronic, yeah. because if you make if like if you just look like if you work super hard, you put everything into a training session and you lift heavy weights and you. You're going to get rewarded for that with mm-hmm. tissue changes, like plain and simple. Um, and you know, do a, a lot of bodybuilders aren't crushing themselves to the point of, um, you know, what what like a thirty thirty will do or a twenty forty will do. It's it's a different level of metabolic stress. Like, yeah. I'm also not putting programs together for elite level bodybuilders. You know what I mean? I I like to put programs together for people that want to be at athletic and and still like really push muscle mass as well yeah um so if i was putting something together for an elite bodybuilder i might not put the same level of oxidative stress into the training session but i still think that people need that every once in a while from the perspective of an acute variable yeah um because i feel like in the aftermath of it you're at rest, the oxidative stress will be less. Like, you'll make those parasympathetic adaptations and the heart rate will be lower. It's the yin for the yang. Another another thing, too, though, with regards to just, like, top-level performers, be they bodybuilders or people in any sport domain, you know, so, like, American football, track and field, or even the elite crossfitters, like, there's also this thing that we need to talk about, which is trade-off, which is, like, James Fitzgerald from Opeth talks about this with the crossfitters. He's like, Crossfitters know that that what they're doing is not well. He's like the top crossfitters know what they're doing is not good for longevity, but they don't. They mm-hmm. they, they, they don't like a lot of them understand to try that. Like rugby players, are rugby's not healthy. Like smashing right. my, smashing my joints all the time every weekend, getting concussions. Like they like a, a lot of them would be would would have a fair idea. Like or this probably isn't good for my long term health, but it's the price they're willing to pay to. So it yeah. comes, it comes down to context and what the person is willing to trade off. But, uh, I'm, I'm here to I'm here to live, not yeah. to worry about dying. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna die at some point, and I'm okay with that. But am I really living? Well, if, here? You, if you read Sapiens, you might fucking think about that again. He's talking about like overcoming death and life extension and shit like that. But Pat, listen, I'm uh, I'm really gonna eat my face here if I don't eat soon. So yeah, uh, we're rolling <laughs> we're, we're rolling on. To, uh, if we can get that on film, I think that that will be the most successful podcast that that you put together. Like, that'll be. That'll go viral. But uh, but uh, what what where we'll pick up on the next day is the the optimal uh, environment you, you're going to set up. So you know you talked about uh, like your seven steps. One was you know reduce oxidative stress environment, up mitochondrial, mitochondrial content, up aerobic system with parasympathetic state, 
Um, and the, what I love about that is, you know, when people say, "Oh, you need to do aerobic work," and it's like, there's a specific type of aerobic work. Now we're talking about we're not talking about high intensity aerobic stuff where you're doing a ball too, because then you're going back into an oxidative state. So we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. I really want to get into that, and then we'll pick up on the heart adaptation, which is very interesting. And then yeah. we'll then we'll start attacking the specific days themselves and the phases. So I want to go through that and really get down to the nitty gritty in those two. So. I love it. I, I've been looking forward to an opportunity to really delve into the specifics of what's in that book. Because we're fucking nerds, and I love it. I was, yeah. just, I was up, you know, I've been up at 6 o'clock the last few mornings just absorbing this book. Like, as I said, I didn't read Mass 2. I studied it. And now I'm, I'm currently living parts of Mass 1 in my life, which I hate you for. But Because uh, <laughs> in, 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 my, in my training, it's like, you know, it's like, why do I hate myself so much? Why am I doing this? <laughs> but uh, listen, I'll wrap this up. Uh, you stay online, though. So, guys, that's going to be part one of Mass 2. Hopefully I can get Pat back on soon. He's doing a bit of travel. We'll talk about it now as we go offline. But for now, guys, take care, stay strong. Or oh, sorry, take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.